So, Werner, how do we start? Hi, this is Werner and Aga, and this is the Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And in this episode, we're going to solve a mystery, or maybe we're going to talk about a few mysteries. There is no escaping the fact that Victor von Duren is a mysterious, interesting, and talented designer. His humble demeanor hides the fact that he's an awarded and successful designer of deeply immersive experiences. He could not escape destiny himself. He wrote in an article that a simple Facebook tag led him to the first escape room experience which gave birth to the company he shares with two other partners since 2014. Sherlock has become the benchmark in escape room experiences and was awarded the number one escape room experience in the Netherlands. Victor is an entrepreneur in the true sense of the word. He also founded Uncover and developed a process to customize a MacBook backlight art which further developed into Uncover Lab, the world's first tattoo shop for objects in, in Amsterdam. I found this quote that I think describes him well. Van Duren is a usual suspect in and around town. He's sort of an enigma, working on some of the most admirable projects, often just for fun and mostly serious. And then also I found this little gem online and we'll post a link to that where he keeps a secret map of all his favorite coffee shops all over Amsterdam well worth a visit. Actually, I think that a lot of people may not know what the process of designing an escape room is all about. Could you explain a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So what we do is we create mystery experiences and escape rooms are a category underneath that. It's a type of experience. It's a type of mystery, mysterious experience. An escape room is basically a design space where all around you, you are immersed into a story and this story needs you to propel itself forward. So it means there are challenges there, there are puzzles there, there are things that require your input, your talent, your agency to complete. So it's that that's where the game aspect of it comes in. You need to do things. And it, it got started around 2011 and then it started growing in 2012. And back then the, the format of escape rooms were quite simple where you'd have a room, there were puzzles inside and you'd need to solve this track of puzzles in order to get out. So that's where the word escape comes from. You need to go through a series of challenges to escape. But what it turned out that this format um, of, of setting a preset amount of challenges that people would need to solve to get out or just to complete the mission lends itself fantastically to all kinds of different genres, different forms of creativity. And so from the success of escape rooms, it really it blossomed into all, into all kinds of, well, they'd still call themselves escape rooms, but you could say they're actually immersive mission-based experiences. But because the word escape has a ring to it, and because maybe we're also secretly, there's a lot of power in the thought of escaping. It's a very strong action verb. I think that's why the term stuck. And even though every other week on the forums of escape room owners, you see somebody suggesting, hey guys, what should we call it? Because we've gone way beyond the format of escaping. And then there's a big conversation with suggestions of other things to call it. But in the end, it still is escape rooms because that's the most catchy term. Would it maybe be viable to say that engaging with an experience that you create allows me to escape from my real life? Absolutely. That's the secret. The secret um, real meaning of escape rooms is that you are escapist. It's an escapist experience. And that's very much part of the power of it and that you immerse yourself into a different world, a world where there's more potency, where you can be a hero 
That's, I think, one of the key appeals of escape rooms and also LARPs for that matter. And that's also, I, I remember your, your question for later on, what is the dark side of escape rooms? I think leveraging that escapism um, wish, but in such a way that people, it, that it spills over into your real life so that the kind of empowerment that you feel doing these challenges, solving them successfully and the kind of strength you feel, the courage that you have to display or that you have to exercise, that you will have more direct access access to it in your normal life because you've just experienced it in a fiction. That is my hope. That is actually the light side. And the dark side is that that doesn't happen, that it stays like just normal entertainment. So you're saying that this is more than entertainment? I think it can be. And I think it's our kind of, it's our, you could say a duty or it's at least it's our challenge as makers to create something that um, has, that, that requires positive, that requires positive actions from the people playing it and that they then can carry into their real life so that they can be stronger, more intelligent, more em empathetic, better communicators, better collaborators and braver people. You mentioned that there is this one type of uh, mystery adventures, which is the escape room. What are the others? Oh yeah, it's quite varied. And actually people, people makers are now discovering what other possibilities there are. For instance, if my friend Root has created something called Puzzle, puzzle Post or Puzzle Post. It's a Dutch thing, so we call it Puzzle Post. And it's, you get a mystery by mail and the ideal form of it, which is where you have a four-part mystery that gets sent to you in four different batches unfolding along the way, is where you have escape room-esque challenges, but much more story-based and you get it sent to your home and then you have to solve things to get through it like a detective. Um, and then you trigger the next episode by solving it. And so this has some different elements in that you're not in a controlled environment such as an escape room, but you are diving into a mysterious story where you are required to complete it. So that's one form. Another form is that of a large which has actually preceded escape rooms by many, many years is where people assume a role and say it's not just a controlled environment where you have the fiction supported by decor, but the fiction is supported by the behavior of the people in it, which is a very big difference between escape rooms and LARPs is that in an escape room, typically you are you. And you don't have to dress up. You don't have to think, how would my character behave? Because you are you in an extraordinary setting. And, and in a LARP, you are an extraordinary character in an ex extraordinary setting. Which is also directly why, why LARPing is more of a niche or more, it has a higher threshold to entry um, as opposed to escape rooms, which has a very low threshold to entry for players. It feels like the escape room experience is a little bit more approachable for the man on the street to kind of get them in that world. But definitely, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, some escape rooms also introduce other characters. So it's other human beings actually interacting with, with the guests. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's one of our more unique qualities. And uh, indeed, other escape rooms also do this. Um, many don't because I think out of cost, but it does pay off because this human interaction makes it so much more real and, and it makes the stakes higher. So we have this, the vault, our breaking experience, where you actually have to bluff your way into the building before the, the whole puzzle adventure even begins. And that interaction uh, heightens the stakes. People think, okay, this is real. There's a human involved. I better watch my step. And that's, that is very engaging, very empowering, and it helps suspend the disbelief in a very nice way. So that's why we always try to have uh, live action role-playing elements 
in the smallest, lowest threshold kind of form. A lot of the conversations that we have in this podcast is that we want to see how transformative experiences actually get translated into business. Some of the businesses that we deal with want to solve all these problems with technology or tools or non or intangible things, but you still rely on a little bit of human interaction in well in the mix and make and that makes for a richer experience. It does. And it makes me think of something that's quite popular in the Netherlands has been for, I think, 20 years where you use training actors to, um, to create scenarios in the business world where people would have to negotiate or would have to convince each other or to deal with a difficult person in a team capacity. And I really look forward to creating a more gamified experience that's, that we run permanently, but with this goal, because now businesses are like a businesses are booking our games quite a lot, uh, oftentimes with the goal of team building and sometimes with the insight of sometimes with the insight of improving people's communication skills, collaboration skills, their proactiveness, because you need to be very proactive in our experiences. That's already the case now. Just imagine what it would be like when we have a game that's completely designed for that. Quite recently, I was talking to a friend of mine who said that we should start designing games which are called corporate escape might be a direction. Yeah. We've already experimented with this in 2016 in a very interesting game where we had seven game, uh, seven teams playing first against each other. And then they discover that they're actually better off collaborating as teams. And, um, we would love to pick up that project again because that was a temporary one, which we did in collaboration with the uh, Port of Amsterdam, which was a fantastic partner to work with because they have, first of all, they, they gave us a lot of budget to work with, but also gave us a beautiful field in Amsterdam to put the, like these containers on. But that was a temporary thing. And so we still have the puzzles and the games. But we don't have a location. So at some point, we're going to take that out of the box literally again and, uh, and create our own corporate escape oriented experience. Thinking about the scale that Sherlock works on, uh, the, the complexity of some of your clients, the demanding customers that you guys have, you must have some kind of process or framework. Can you give us a little peek? This might sound a little bit childlike and lazy, but the the core tenet is the question, what is awesome? What will be awesome? And there's a lot hidden in there because we, we try to create, we try to design for surprise, which automatically means that it has to be original, that people shouldn't have had a chance to experience something similar before. We sometimes allow ourselves to use elements that are cliches um, from the film world, for instance, again, with the break-in, we do include the maneuvering of a laser field, which is, you know, not very original. It's been in a lot of heist movies, but that's why it's in there because it's that you want that. Um, but for the rest, there's a lot of surprising elements. It's a much more complex break-in than you would expect. So designing for surprise means that it has to be awesome. And in order to have people be awe inspired, yeah, they shouldn't have seen it before. So there's a lot hid hidden in that question, what will be awesome? And there's also a very interesting balance and tension there because oftentimes the things that are awesome are the things that are impossible in the real world. And I'm very inspired by movies. I've, I've watched a lot of movies and I love action films. So there's a lot of things that can be done in stunt form in a very controlled environment, but that you cannot have uh, untrained people, your players, exposed to. So that kind of question, which is also the kind of question that magicians have to deal with, what can we do safely, but pushing the boundaries is something that we include in our process. And it spins off from this question, what will be awesome? And then very, like very technically or, or very simply, we, we, des we design before we build and then we test. So that's, that's basic design process. We sometimes don't, actually oftentimes we don't adhere to that because 
as is often the reality, you have to start building uh, before everything is designed because you have a, a deadline or a launch date in mind. Um, and that is all oftentimes that's our Achilles heel that we don't adhere to our own rule of having everything designed before we start building. And yet the reality is that we often do that. Like even as recently as the last project that we did with Google, we accepted the project, even though we knew that we had too little time to really do it the way we wanted to, but we wanted to do the project too too gladly to uh, to reject the premise of the of the launch date. I really appreciate your honesty because I think we all have that experience from time to time where you you so immerse you have to make the experience happen you have to design you have a little bit of time to do the design and sometimes you have to work on your experience right of what you know is going to work and what's not going to work. But also something I wanted to add to that because I don't want it to sound like that we don't make anything during the design process but we do prototype a lot so we make cardboard versions of interactive that we design. Um, and a very nice example that we made a game based on Rush Hour, which is this little game where you move a car, um, move by move in order to get your, your own car through a maze of cars. Very, very classic puzzle game. And it's only available in miniature. But we, we had access to a ballroom where we were having our office. So it was a big space and we bought a lot of cardboard boxes and we created a massive maze of movable boxes that you could like person height boxes that, that we stacked. And then we created the movable maze where you, we would then say, okay, so we need to add something fun here. We need to, this one is too complex. Oh, let's add a little tunnel here. All these ideas came from prototyping. And then we, we solidified the design, did that with all the other challenges. And then the actual construction of the wooden version would begin. While you are pushing the limits towards the awesome, it feels like you're also leaving little, a little trail of what is recognizable like little breadcrumbs that leads me towards the awesome. Is, is this the right interpretation? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, so awesome is not a diametrically opposed to familiar. So a lot of the, whoa, that players experience is from, oh my God, I cannot believe that this is now physical. So what are the possible traps designers can fall into? Yeah, so, so all these traps, they smell like us because we've been there. The thing that we ourselves tumble into the most is the wish to be original and make it complex. And then overestimating a player's ability to comprehend a story once it's become complex. Because, and this is where we differ from movies, movies are a passive experience where people can watch what is being handed to them. They, they are required to do a lot of thinking, especially in the better movies, but they have their whole bandwidth available to do this thinking. So when you're watching a Christopher Nolan film, which is incredibly rich and very fast paced, he's pushing you to pay attention with your whole brain. And when you are, but when you are inside a real life experience, such as an escape room, you don't have your whole brain available because first of all, you have to move. You have to not bump, in, bump into things. You have an awareness of your team. You have for instance, five other people operating in that space. You have the time pressure. You have to do things, which all, these are all things that limit you or that take some bandwidth away. So um, the trap that we fall into the most and we are very aware of now is that, you know, keep it simple. The story should be very simple. The goal should be very simple. And this is something that I learned from people who designed the VR experience of uh, the Star Wars experience um, from The Void. They, um, they, they call this the critical thought in that the player has to have a critical goal, one thing in mind in order for them to really function. It has to be very simple. They have to have something that they can hold on to, 
something that when they've done it, they know they're done, that they did a good job. And so, for instance, with the heist, it is stealing the the source. And the way there can be incredibly complex and twisty and that you can still have some twists afterward, but not for too long because once you've done the critical thought, the critical goal, um, I think you'll, you'll be pretty tired and you'd like to release the endorphins and, and feel accomplishment. So I think that is the, the main thing that we tumble into complexity and some other things that I think we're pretty okay at is uh, respecting immersion. And I think a lot of other, at least escape room makers do not have a high enough regard for immersion to really go for this. And I think this is changing, which is great. And it gave us a big, um, head, uh, head start in the past four years, the four years of our existence as well where we try to really not have any um, immersion breaking elements inside our, our experiences. And now we see that more and more people really respecting the space saying, okay, we, we cannot have any, for instance, anachronisms, things that don't belong in the time of the story or um, style breaks or references to the experiences being a game. We, when you are referencing, when you're in an experience and, and, and somebody says um, uh, that is not part of the game, which is a literal thing that a lot of escape rooms do through hints uh, when somebody's, for instance, touchy, touching something they shouldn't touch. Um, if you have to tell a player, don't touch that because it's not part of the game, you break the illusion. You, you reference the fact that it is a game. So you can do this elegantly. You say, you say for instance, I wouldn't touch that for, uh, if I were you being kind of coy. Um, there's lots of ways to do this as a good host, a game master can. Um, but the initial challenge for a designer is not to have any of those things that could break the experience. So not to allow for things that people aren't allowed to touch. So whenever we discuss immersive experiences, there's always this discussion of crossing the threshold. And typically, I perhaps very wrongly was convinced that crossing the threshold is not a one minute thing, that it takes time for people to go from the real world to the fantasy world that's being created. Uh, yet with the mystery experiences, people come there for a limited time. I think it can do, be done gradually, but it can also be done binary. So... It doesn't have to be, but many escape rooms, for instance, just like in theater, the lights go off, you're in, you've crossed the threshold, the, the, the fiction has started. With us, especially the vaults, the fiction is starting gradually. You, it, it actually started, it starts the moment you book. That's when we will no longer reference the fact that it's a game. I wish that we could skip that stage and we sometimes have, but because we're a commercial operation and people need to pick a date and pay for the experience, that's where, uh, where it's not in story. But at some, sometimes we, for instance, arrange a game for a friend or uh, help someone arrange a game for their friend who will be un unwitting, then the experience is, is just completely immersive for them because they, they are not aware that there's, someone has paid for their game. For them, they are invited into an actual heist. And of course, they still have the, suspicion, uh, the, the, the awareness that it's not an actual heist. Only a few cases where people were just so immersed that they were really actually scared that they were being used under the guise of an escape room to commit an actual crime. Um, that's happened twice in 
three years and uh, they called the police on us. They were, they were very, they were afraid that, or one actually called and the, the other one was the, they didn't want to continue playing. Um, in the end, there was a wonderful story and a very cool experience. And, and, and this person, of course, the one who called the police had a previous experience, uh, of, of being scammed, not through an escape room or any kind of experience, but they still had that trauma in the back of their minds. Aga, you always say you don't design an experience, you design for an experience. And what Victor alluded to here is that the immersion that happened for this specific individual actually triggered a past experience that was potentially not that positive, but it's it's truly an interesting uh, concept to think about. Yeah, and that, that is also a good um, good thing to keep in mind for when designing uh, intensive or intense experiences is that, you know, um, especially in America, there's a culture of uh, having a trigger warning. Uh, we don't, so far so good. And I think it's part and parcel to people booking a very, a very immersive experience, one that is marketed as such, that they take responsibility for it being intensive and potentially scary or even triggering of, of past traumas. I think the marketing part of it is very important so that people know what they're going to get. Uh, we just spoke about the crossing the threshold, then there's the experience. And then sometimes I feel that we forget about the offboarding, the post experience. Is that something that you, you consider in, in the design of your puzzles? Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't think we did a great job with that at the vault. And, um, and we are lucky in that we have uh, good hosts or maybe not lucky because that's one of the most, we, we respect hostmanship as one of the most important things that influence the experience of the players. So they will do a debriefing. They will do an out of game conversation with the people, which allows for all the tension to drop and people to feel the excitement and share the excitement. And then I think the actual luck part is that we are right next door to a very nice cafe where people then sit and after talk. It's also a place where I sometimes, uh, I also sit and then people go sit next to me without me knowing, knowing me. And so then I hear the actual feedback, the raw feedback without them filtering it, um, which can be great and sometimes a bit, a bit jarring. Um, <laughs> but, but so these two things really help us that we have great hosts and that there's a place for this kind of debriefing among, among themselves afterwards. But for our next experience, we're also doing some more aftercare, also after they've left the building. And um, one of the things that all escape rooms do, including us, is to create a team picture, which um, is kind of a triumphant picture. Like we went through this and we survived, which is mainly for marketing purposes for us because people will share that out of pride and out of enthusiasm. But it's also part of the ritual of of tying a ribbon around the experience and saying this is done. And I've, I've, I've looked into how people communicate in the kind of the pre-joy, the preamble. Um, they always make a WhatsApp group together with their team and then they share screenshots of the things that get sent to the booker. I think there's a lot of room for improvement there actually to communicate with the whole team. And that's something that I would love to do in the next iteration of the vault. And one of the things that I'm working on now is to um, have a chat bot that gets inserted into those WhatsApp groups so that there's already a presence of a character there, um, of the co of the contractor, so that they can already kind of have fun and kind of be ask some questions about the heist to this character who will later transform into this character that is their handler. So Victor, uh, you mentioned Google before. Now, when anybody mentions Google, the years go. So could you maybe talk a little bit about the experience that you guys built for, for, for them? Yeah. 
Now, that was、um, a very difficult and challenging brief that they gave us. And they said, We've wanted to work with you guys, or we've wanted to create an experience, and we've had you on the radar. And I wish, they said, <laughs> we wish that we could give you a more joyful thing. But here's the brief people don't really understand what we do with data, and what they don't understand, they don't trust. And we actually don't do Weird things with people's data. So, can we, through the use of a game, make people understand that they have freedom, choice, and control over how we use their data? And, so, and then we thought, oh, guys, we thought we could make like a really fun game with, with Google style and slides and that kind of thing. And then they said, well, try to do that with this message. <laughs> and、uh, so, it was an example of a company using the power of experience, the power of gaming, but then physical gaming. To draw attention to a message that they had from their communication and PR department. And we also said, like, hey, even if you run this for many months, you're not going to be reaching that many people by letting them play that. And they said, that's fine. It's, a, it's about the stories that they share, it's about the online reverberations of the experience. And, th- and then we said, yeah, that's great because that we can do. And in the end, we ended up making a very fun, very playful experience where people take the role, they assume the, the role of Google's algorithm in three different uh, projects, uh, three different products that Google has being、uh, Google Search. Google Maps and YouTube. And with each of these games, we made three different games as part of the experience.、Um, they would have to choose, for instance, with YouTube, what recommendations to give a certain user. And this user would either share their, their preferences or not. And you could then imagine that, or you could experience that it's more difficult to give relevant、uh, recommendations to a user if you don't have any、uh, data on,、uh, on, their, uh, on their viewing. Patterns.、Um, the same goes for maps, where you, if you don't have any traffic information, you will send people、uh, into traffic. And the same went for, for search. When, you know, when they give an ambiguous search term, which could mean like 17 different things, if you don't have any background info, you will not be able to give them a relevant result. So, and we had them experience this by giving them the goal of, of serving these Google clients well within a very short amount of time. And that created a, actually a really fun game. This business of escape rooms, as it is generally called, like you mentioned. So, you know, it started really small. I also remember in Poland, in Warsaw, we would have one escape room, one in another city, and so on. And today, there are like so many of them. What makes it grow so exponentially? Well, I think it's a combination of people playing it and getting super ex- inspired. And so they experience this thing that they really love in a state of. Um, heightened activity of empowerment because, because they've just done things. And when this meets, when, when, when this happens to a person who is either A, entrepreneurial or B, not happy with the current situation of being employed and always wanted to be entrepreneurial, this, this, This meets them as a call to adventure, saying, I want to do this. I want to create this for other people. I want to have other people experience this joy that I've just experienced. That was it for me. That combined with the fact that it actually also used to be, and I don't think that's the case anymore, relatively low cost of entry. Like, for instance, we made our first experience for, I think, 27,000 euros. 
maybe 30 in total in, in, uh, after the first few months of running. But that's a really low investment for something that, you know, that, that gives people this kind of joy and, and creates a business. Right now, I don't think you could do that anymore. We couldn't do that for sure. Like our, our budgets right now start around 60K, so double of what we um, used to um, be able to pull off. And that's to do with the fact that, you know, it's become harder to be unique and to, and also the, the, you know, so the bar has been raised and for instance, in Amsterdam, there's 40 different escape, escape games. So competition is, is fierce in a very friendly way. In short, the answer to your question, why it grows so exponentially is that on the one side, it, it meets people in their enthusiastic state. And second is the relative low barrier to entry. That's great. And then, uh, Victor, thinking about your business model, um, something that I realized recently is that, okay, great. So I go and I experience your, your escape room. And of course, you might have one or two other games there. What is interesting for me is like, do you consider or think about return visits of your customers? So for example, if I've done one experience with you, how do you then follow up to potentially bring me back? Or do you constantly look at casting the web, the web wider for, for like just looking for new customers all the time? Both. So that's that's also the interesting part about the competition within escape rooms in that once you've, you've been played or once people have played your game, those people will want to do more. At least if the game was good, they'll want to do more. And you'll have a limited amount of experiences to give them. With us in Amsterdam, it's, it's just two, which is quite little of quite few. It's because we take a long time to make new things and we've been doing projects like Google. So we then recommend them to play the games that our friends or our friendly colleagues in different companies have made. So we kind of, and, th- and they do the same. And, and it's not out of friendship. It's out of that we create really good experiences and so do they. So there's this ecosystems of recommendation, which is quite a very friendly way of competing, which is a great, great thing for an ecosystem because a rising tide lifts all boats. So the only thing that we have to be careful about in this ecosystem is that there are no bad experiences still being launched. And and we don't know how to influence that because you actually can't influence that. And my hope has always been, and I think that's happening right now, is that the, the the raising of the bar takes care of that itself so that you cannot get away with launching a basic or bad escape room anymore because you will not survive as a business. If someone wants to design or enter the space of designing mystery experiences, what are the qualities, character qualities, any other qualities that... um are beneficial. Yeah. Um, I think the character quality that helped me a lot is that I always loved movies and I always had a bit of a, a weird thing about me that I would take them too seriously, or I would, I would reject the fact that certain things were only in movies. This barrier between what is cinema and what is real life was very blurred with me. Another thing that I think really helps as an escape room designer is to, to be playful. It's kind of aligned to it. But it's the the ability to enjoy an idea that you have before it's been made. But some people don't have it. And I I think it will be very hard to create cool experiences if you don't have this imagination, basically, where you can envision something and then think, yeah, that could be great. So if you had an unlimited budget for designing an experience or, you know, like you, you, you had no money trouble, what would it be? 
So that's a dangerous thing because you can create an experience on an infinite scale, right? So you can enchant the whole world and create an infinite game, kind of in the way that the world, like the, the world is an infinite game. It has its rewards, it has its challenges, its its dangers and, and you know, obstacles. You could bring that to the ne- ne- new level and create a worldwide adventure. That's something that really appeals to me. And I, I think it's appealed to many people. And, but I think... I think it might be a little bit of a, a dangerous project to take on because then the danger of creating a paranoid state might be there. A state of mind, not a state uh, as in a country. Um, but I, I do feel like taking away the walls of an escape room and creating something um, that enchants the real world is a, is a next wave to catch. And Victor, talking about the next wave and going into, in quotes, once again, the real world. So imagine you sitting in your favorite coffee shop where you are listening to all your participants talk about your experience. And then all of a sudden, a CEO of a big bank walks in to have a cup of coffee and he sit, happens to sit right next to you. And you guys start talking about experience design. Is there anything in your experience that could be translated into mainstream business that could improve experiences for them? Yeah. So I... Well, the per- personally, what I would want to ask these people is, is are you having a positive effect on the world? Are you, is your product, the things you make, um, making a positive difference? Because oftentimes the true answer will be not really, or actually no. <laughs> um, sometimes creations uh, from products from banks, or you also mentioned retail before um, in, the, in the questions, they have a detrimental effect. And that's, that's where I would start. And if you were to ask me the question... Um, the same question. I think we're having a very positive effect on the world in terms that we are kind of empowering people and bringing them in touch with their creativity, their playfulness, their inner child. And at the same time, we're not costing any resources. We're not making physical things. We're not burning fossil fuels to do it. We're not exploiting child workers to create clothes for it. It's uh, the cool thing about an experience is that it is intangible and it's very low, um, it has a very low um, karmic footprint. And so th- that's not the answer to the question that you asked, but it's, it is the thing that I would want to ask them if I had access to their brain and access to their more courageous side and their conscience. And if I have to interpret this, if I may, at your core, if your product and service is not really looking after someone, you cannot wrap it into an amazing experience to make it look better. Yeah, I think that is what true. you're trying That's to it. do. Too. I wouldn't want to create an experience that hides the fact or that kind of distracts people from the fact that something is wrong. So if you were to judge for yourself, whether you are in the transformative experience space or just the experience like in terms of timing well spent, where would you see yourself? So I think that mostly like 80% of the people who play, they have a great time and they're, uh, they're excited, they're enthusiastic and they're very entertained. I think 20% of people are really touched and they will, will, as a result of having experienced one of our games, change something in their lives. And I know this from a few people who've, who've sent us letters saying, after this, I quit my job or after this, I know what I want to do. And oftentimes I kind of half ironically, it, it, what they want to do is create these kinds of experiences for others, which I think is great. And so that's the most tangible thing. I can point to 20 entrepreneurs who became escape room makers because of what they played with us. And that's not all to our credit. It's also to the credit of the genre on its own. Um, but I've seen that happen. And so I've seen the power of, of really switching someone on, activating someone, engaging them and giving them a new sense of 
joy or purpose. And my our next step would be to have that become broader so that people will play one of our experiences and they are activated or transformed even in another way. And that's the next chapter for us. So what it is that you do that gets the people choose you? What are the extra miles that you take that make people want to come to you? Yeah. I would like to start by saying that um, we're, we're not as great as we'd like to be or as I would like us to be. And um, there are some other really amazing experiences out there, especially in, like in Berlin and London, that I respect a lot for kind of these reasons. And then there are a few reasons that may, do make us special and that I love seeing, for instance, the, the maker in Berlin that I'm referring to, um, very consciously seeing that and saying, okay, I will, I will try to put that into my experiences as well. So there's a very healthy exchange and exchange of inspiration. Mostly actually, it's not, not a purpose for teaching each other, but just by visiting each other's experiences, we learn from each other. And one of the things that we do well is that this bleeding of the fiction into the reality and the gradual, a gradual introduction into the fiction from the moment of booking. So this, this thing that we talked about where once you've booked, the story starts and you get approached by a fictional character that talks to you in the, in real life. And then more concretely, once you are at the location, uh, the vault, a uh, break-in experience doesn't start at the building itself. It starts around the corner because you first have to get your gear kit, your briefcase full of break-in gear uh, before you can actually get in. And so these, these, these kinds of blurring of the line between fiction and reality is something that we love to do. And I think it's a very, very uh, prerequisite for, for us now. It's one of our staples. And I, I, I would love to see other games do more of that as well, because I can just see the joy that it causes with people, that it gives people. So that's one. The other is that we exclusively use locations that have a story uh, of their own, like these beautiful historical locations. And it's also one of our downsides as a company or the reason why sometimes we don't have any money to spend is because we have a really expensive location that that is the downside but the upside is that we have a space which we can really make people believe that there are that there are in the experience that we're suggesting they're in and you can't really fake that you can't really do that in a different kind of location the fact that you're there inside this old um, safe deposit box complex or inside the old office of the actual architect of the, that, that very old building. Um, yeah, it breathes life into the experience. And so it's worth the cost. But Victor, it sounds like as an artist, you don't want to compromise on those kind of things. It's part of the experience, right? Yeah, exactly. It's part of what makes Sherlock, uh, Sherlock. But for our next experience, which will be in the tower of the old stock exchange, um, we've really maybe bitten more off than we can chew because this, this, this tower is just insanely complicated in terms of regulations and what, what, and also what we can put screws into and what we can't. And so it's very challenging, not just because it's very expensive, but also because it's much harder to work with monumental spaces. But those are two, I think, two ways of going ex the extra mile that we love to do. And then there's a couple of other design principles that we adhere to, or try to adhere to at least, that other people are doing now as well. For instance, uh, what we talked about, what we call diegetic design. 
diegetic puzzles. It's a term from the movie industry where diegetic sound means that you're hearing sound that the characters are hearing. Um, and diegetic puzzles means that the puzzles have an explanation of being there, that they're part of the story and that they're not randomly there. This is one of the things that make me cringe about escape rooms is that people, makers, do not ask themselves the question, why is this there? Why do people have to do this in order to proceed? Um, and the answer always is because it's a cool puzzle. It's a cool experience. And, you know, don't... Uh, <laughs> Don't kill my buzz. <laughs> um, but actually, when people are playing it, some a voice in their mind is saying, okay, I have to do this because of that. And if it's not the case, if it's, why do I have to do this? Well, this makes no sense. And they'll have to have another voice saying, never mind, it's cool. And that's a shame. It's, it's very hard. Once you get this design principle, there are many things that you don't do anymore, or you have to find a way to be able to do them coherently. Uh, but we believe in it. So it's, it's very important to us, this kind of coherence. Klaus, our friend Klaus Rastet from, uh, from the LARP world, uh, calls this alibi. The different puzzles need to have an alibi to be there. As I'm listening to you describing this, I'm thinking, you know, initially I thought, hey, this is probably an easy thing. You need to have a big puzzle and then you just put a bunch of stuff together and people need to discover the answer to the puzzle that you're designing. But now I'm I, I, when I listen to you, it feels like there's an empty canvas. And then everything that you add to this empty canvas is there by intent. You can't just drop something in there because you like it. It needs to be part of the, the bigger story to an extent. Yeah, exactly. And that's that. what makes it difficult. Sometimes you're disheartened when a good idea doesn't fit into your experience. But the way to deal with that is to have this list. I call it my candy box it's where you put all the ideas and you park them and you say, this would be amazing for a different project. And so over time, each of us developed a beautiful box with all these ideas. And sometimes I start designing experience by saying, hey, what was in the box again? And then you read all that and you get excited and then the, the juices start flowing. And that's also a really good way to get started. <laughs> so this is like designers uh, collecting inspirations from... Uh, in form of pictures or uh, or ideas or stuff like that. This is a very similar process. Mm, that's very nice. You've mentioned, Victor, that um, in the future you would like to shift a bit more intentionally to the transformational space. But then we haven't asked you what you see as. What is a transformation? Something that's limiting the potential for transformation in all kinds of experiences, not just escape rooms, but also cinema and theater, video games, at home mysteries um, is that is that there's very little carryover to your own world and that there's not a thread that takes you there's a, an accountability thread missing um, from hey so you've you've been touched by this this is has inspired you in a way what are you going to do with it and that's because the 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 mediums have been designed in a, in a time when that was not possible yet when this kind of communication between um, either the maker and the experiencer wasn't very easily possible or between different peers who are experiencing it. But when you are, are touched by an experience, you want to talk about that with other people. And so I think, for instance, in a prison escape LARP, kind of LARP, kind of escape room LARP that, that, that we have here in the Netherlands called Prison Escape, people are really touched and sometimes um, 
inspired to live differently. And then this group that they've experienced it with could function as a therapy group, but it doesn't yet because they're not connected. Um, so facilitating that, facilitating the contact between the peers that you experience it with, um, I think has a lot of potential for transformation. It connects to me with something that we've also been discussing with Werner before, that bottom line in transformation is that people change to become the better versions of themselves. Our kinds of experiences where we get people in touch with their the playful side and their joyful, most active and engaged side is that we remind people that they have that that, that, that that's actually an experience that they can have, that that's an emotion they can have, that's a feeling that they can experience. Because many people have forgotten that. Many people have forgotten the joy of play. And just by getting people in touch with that, you help them transform. I, I agree completely that we are educated and raised in a way that the fun and this child, childish or childlike uh, joy is something that's being seen as not serious enough, not mature enough, not not profitable, uh, you know, like it doesn't show your strength. You should come and exude confidence and be a serious professional. But I think that playful, playfulness and fun is just one of the many things that experiences such as um, uh, mystery experiences could help people to deal with. With many, with many things, people are consciously or, or subconsciously afraid of trying new things, of trying out to be someone else, trying out to dare to do something that they were always afraid to do. In a way, what you are creating is to create a, a safe space for these kind of experiences. And it goes beyond playfulness and it, it truly can go into a transformation. However, I think that the big thing there is to maybe change the perspective from designing puzzle to bring joy and go into thinking, okay, what sort of deep troubles people have with their adult lives that we can facilitate or we can help with by facilitating a platform when they can face their fears and, you know, get onto the other side with, 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 with the fear gone. Oh, sorry. But it's just like, I, 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 I always keep on thinking that and Werner heard it a thousand times already that there is the set of deep needs that we have as humans. And once they are addressed through design, uh, they lead us to feel happier because bottom line is that what makes us happier is that we see that we become the better version of ourselves. So in so many ways, uh, and I'm sort of answering a question that I wanted to ask, but in so many ways, I think that the the gigantic potential that you guys have in this kind of uh, business domain um, or entertainment domain is that you can push it beyond entertainment and time well spent and repurpose it into making people really... Yeah, I, I agree. I'm very curious if there's going to be a role for escape rooms as a, as a genre to, to, to play in that, or that it will be more marketed as theater. It doesn't really matter. I'm just curious about that, but it makes me think of this theatrical experiences, uh, experience called you, me, bum, bum train, which was a one person adventure all through a building where you are 
rushed and guided through room after room, scenario after scenario of real world experiences as different characters. As different, I, I can't, I, I'm officially not permitted to give any examples because I, I very solemnly pledged not to not to share anything. But imagine a roller coaster ride between the lives of 70 different people of different walks of life that you would each taste for just 60 seconds, but not just in video form, but in real life form in that there are, I think there were like 400 volunteers supporting this experience in 50 different scenes um, where you would be the main character. And um, yeah, I think that for many people, including myself, this is a very inspiring, transformational, almost traumatic, because it's just an overload of empathy that you are, are, are injected with because you have, well, now, now you have empathy with a doctor, now you have empathy with a dead person, now you are a fugitive, uh, now you're a refugee, now you have, yeah, that, that really gave me a taste of how much an experience can touch a person. With, if, if we consider that mystery experiences can be taken into the next level towards transformations, it opens up an, an, an amazing space to collaborate with um, psychologists, with sociologists, with, with, with people from very different uh, domains of humanity uh, that can bring the knowledge about how the human brain and, and human culture, our culture works, and use this as a trigger and also the moderation. That's the next step. And it's happening already a little bit. That's how it's happening with us. But I see other people also collaborating with psychologists and team, um, team, team dynamic ex, uh, dynamics experts to design games that will um, evoke conflict or that will in, evoke, that will require good communication, um, that will draw out the, some neuroses within teams so that they can then discuss it later. And the next step be, be, beyond that is not to wait for the discussion later to deal with it, but to have it be dealt with in game. That would be awesome, huh? Yeah. You know, there's, there's so much yet to explore. It's a, it's a very exciting time to be in the world of experience design. So what advice would you give to an experience designer of today? So the two things I would, I would do is one is try to experience as much as possible because that will be part of your arsenal, your, your kind of palette of colors to paint with. So I hope that you've already been watching movies and reading books and experiencing music in a way that, that it goes beyond just listening to it um, so that you develop your own taste in what, in what works and what doesn't, for instance. And then if you want to build escape rooms, that means play a lot of them and be very conscious about what, what works for you and what doesn't. Very simple and obvious advice, but I'm still surprised with how many people start escape rooms without really loving them or without having played many. Um, really focus on this question of what would you think is awesome and then you will have played your part in a very positive way and victor would you is there any books that you would recommend that people can have a look at my partner pim and i are writing a book about uh, a game design uh, live game design so that that will be ready at some point um one book that inspired me in the time that I was becoming a filmmaker is called what they don't teach you at film school and that was written by two directors who a obviously were having a lot of fun in the film world and b just is filled with so many w wise nuggets that are applicable to entrepreneurship game design movie making that uh, yeah I, i would read that three times what they don't teach you at film school. If you were to tell us what is your mission statement for your life, what would it be? 
Yeah, I think it is to make the world a bit more magical. I think you're helping with that already. Victor, thank you so very much for being with us today. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Pleasure. That was Aga and Werner in Catching the Next Wave podcast. And we will be back. Thank you.